This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. Our guests consist of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies is hedging the FX risk is actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETF Sponsor. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel. He's the author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion today is not tied to the offers of any investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. Professor, a lot going on in the markets. We have uh, some interesting economic reports. We have some geopolitics updates. We have North Korea, South Korea getting together. Uh, curious on your take. The markets seem to be, you know, sort of hovering around flat, both the year to date, today also. Um, maybe sort of how are you reacting to all the earnings and, and all the developments that we, we see here in the markets? Right. So as I was on CNBC earlier this week, I, I said the market is a battle between the numerator and the denominator. The numerator, of course, is the great earnings we're getting. Uh, the denominator is the higher interest rates. Of course, we know that the the 10-year did cross into the 3% zone, although now it's a little bit, a little bit below it, uh, 295, 296. Um, but that, that's the challenge. Um, the earnings have been blowout, but uh, again, uh, many of the of analysts were not really. They knew earnings would go up because of the tax cut. They just were not sure how much, and a lot of them uh, didn't really raise them as much as as uh, they should. And that's why we have such a good beat. Uh, and why even some firms, even if they beat, are not, uh, uh, you know, uh, burning the house down on their, on their, because it was already calculated uh, in. We got GDP uh, higher than expected, over 2%. Um, uh, government added a little bit more than and expected. Uh, the uh, looking, the people I'm looking at are saying it could be over 3% this quarter. It's very early. Um, we're just done with the first month. But wow, you saw the jobless claims on Thursday, another 45-year low, 209,000. Uh, so the job market looks like it's still hot. And we do definitely now with the uh, compensation report, the employment cost index, ECI came out this morning along with the GDP. Um, we're not seeing runaway inflation or wage growth, but it's pressing up on every uh, on every indicator, that means the Fed is going to tighten every quarter. Um, next Friday is important. Another uh, labor market uh, report. Um, the Fed is also meeting on on May second. No change, but again, we're going to you know we'll look at the statement. They're not going to move rates, but um, the labor market report. We had a poor one last month. If you remember, only one hundred three thousand. We're looking for uh, you know a jump back to nearly two hundred thousand. Um, we'll see what that uh, uh, entails uh, next Friday. 
So as you think about the earnings season, um, you know, the, a, lot, a lot of stories on valuations and to your, your point on the new university denominator, do you, you know, we, analysts get this reputation of being overly optimistic. And uh, this year, I'm seeing 155 for operating earnings in the S&P gets you like a yeah. 17 PE, um, very different than yeah, the trailing that's PE. that's a very reasonable. Now, again, I, I think that, you know, that the one, uh, they're raising it now, again, a little bit of a catch up to the tax cut. Um, 17 PE um, is 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 quite a good long term rate, even if the if the long bond goes to three and a quarter. And that's why you know I I said uh, you know early this year, late late last year, zero to ten percent return this year. Ten uh, we're we're just at that what one or two percent line on return. It's a struggle, but doesn't mean it's a bad market. And I, I emphasize to everyone that's you know looking long term in investing. Do not shy away from these markets. These are these are sound long-term values. It just has short challenges, short-term challenges uh, on the interest rate front, and then on the political front later this year. Any sense on the geopolitics? What you're saying? Oh, well, I mean, we're all kind of in disbelief. Here were people telling me, which I never believed. You know, six months ago there's going to be a war started by North Korea, and all of a sudden they're shaking hands, and everyone's lovey-dovey. I, I, you know, it's great. Uh, is it real? Um, we'll see. Um, and we'll see what kind of safeguards can be uh, negotiated. Uh, I think, you know, on their, the, mood, the mood of the South Koreans is, you know, they want to get together. They really do want unification. They feel themselves one people. Uh, they don't like the leader, of course, but they want normalization. So we're going to see if, if that can go through, uh, you know, with enough nuclear guarantees so that uh, you know, maybe some of the American troops can can leave the uh, Korean Peninsula. Yeah, some of the talk of denuclearization there could be the U.S. backing out. Maybe that you know gives uh, yeah. Another, if there's no- if there's verified denuclearization, part of the deal, North Korea said you take those troops out, and South Korea said there's got to be damn good <laughs> uh, you know uh, uh, inspections. Uh, and assurances, uh, you know, before they're going to give it up. I mean, in many ways, yes, South Korea, we don't want them there. But if they leave, they're, they're, so, they're got a little, little security problem, and they, they know that. So oh, let's see if they work it through. It, it, it would be absolutely wonderful uh, if they could. So we're talking a little bit about bonds on the program today. So your, your high-level view has been 325 at the end of the year. Um, the, sort of the, the, we passed 3%. Now we're ticking below 296. I think that's just um, some yeah, momentum I mean, stalling out. Yeah, very narrow range also, uh, which is, I mean, it's been pressing about 3, then kind of went above there for a day or two and back, um, and uh, waiting for the Fed. But, you know, again, as we see, uh, you know, oil, WTI, 68 and a quarter. Brent is already 75 right now. Commodity prices have, have stabilized a little bit, but they're pressing upward. That, that just means the Fed is definitely going a quarter, a quarter, a quarter, unless there's a big slowdown. So basically, you're going to be looking at you know, two and a half percent on the short rate. And, you know, that means over three on the long rate. And the market is coming to grips with that. But it has the base of that. As you say, great earnings. Even if they don't match up to 155, 150, 148, even um, uh, yet that these levels of rates are are good long-term uh, commitments. Professor, thanks for joining us for some commentary to start the show. Thanks for having me.
So uh, we're going to turn it over to our first guest. We're going to have a real macro focus show on today's GDP report. First part of the program, we're talking rates with Peter Chur, who's the head of macro strategy at Academy Securities, return guest, an expert on fixed income, plus a lot of others. Uh, Peter, welcome back to our program. Uh, thanks very much for having me, Jeremy. Maybe, you know, we, we, last time we spoke with you, you're at Breen Capital. Maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, your new firm, Academy, a little bit what you focus on uh, and, and, and what, what Academy focuses on. Yeah, sounds very good. Um, Academy Securities is a broker-dealer. We're actually owned by disabled veterans. The firm is about 40% staffed by veterans, so one of my responsibilities is actually to help mentor veterans. Um, so I think it's really interesting that there's a social mission to part of our business. Another part that's been really fascinating for me and one of the reasons I joined is we have a geopolitical advisory group of 10 retired admirals and generals um, who are very plugged into what's going on geopolitically, and so I'm there to help actually translate some of their views or insights into what's going on geopolitically into market actions and tradable ideas. And so that's been a very you know, fun and interesting part of this for me. Well, that leads right into the sort of follow-up. Uh, so what is the, the top-down? This year has been dominated by geopolitical tensions, trade talks, um, Asia, and now we have North Korea, South Korea. Any, what's your, your, your admirals and uh, your group saying about what's the current situation? Is that a surprise? Do you think this, uh, the North Korea-South Korea summit is coming together? Is that a, is that a very positive tone? I think it's a positive note. I think the, one of the things that's been very interesting to me is the generals have not only called this very right, but they have talked about North Korea, and they've always thought that this would not escalate. There was that, there was a, you know, it's just too dangerous to escalate, and it was too risky, and they thought there would be some sort of resolution. Now, whether it becomes a denuclearized North Korea, or maybe it's a North Korea that has to be come into the fold of others who have you know, nuclear weapons. I'm not sure exactly how that will play out, but I think they were kind of right about that. They've been very right about Syria again, where there was a lot of angst in the market a week or so ago of how we would respond to the events in Syria and what that would do to Russia. I think as a whole, they kind of look at de-escalation, where it's really kind of been neat for me, and I think we fit together, is if you look at China, China has been very aggressively expanding the South China Seas. You know, they are growing their military presence, they're growing their economic presence, and I think based on that, this trade war, if you want to call it that, is real. And it's really not, though, about tariffs or anything that simple. It's much more, I think, about intellectual property, protecting against China 2025, and at the same time demanding reciprocity in that, okay, why do we have to create JVs to sell into China, and you don't have to do that here? So I think this is going to be a battleground. Yeah, that I, that key word you focus on recipro reciprocity. It seems like that's a argument Trump is on good ground for. That if people have higher tax rates than us, which is probably the case for most of the time, that we tend to be more open of a market. That that seems like an argument that he can take with and uh, and try to get lower tax rates for our our goods overseas. Yeah, I think you look at it, and there's a lot of good points he makes. And I think the natural reaction from Wall Street economists is, oh, trade wars are bad. And that's kind of impacted stocks, but we've probably really been in a trade war for the past 10 years. Only one side's been firing bullets, and we've kind of been taking it. So I think there's really some room for us to get a better deal. And the other part that comes into this reasoning actually ties even North Korea, is that my understanding of this administration, what we're hearing is, they feel adamantly that had we drawn a line in the sand in North Korea 20 years ago, we would not deal with a nuclearized North Korea. So to some extent, we have to do this in trade and particularly intellectual property and reciprocity with China before it's too late.
So interesting, interesting perspective there. So in terms of, you know, we on, on our program, um, maybe at the, at the beginning of this year, we had Graham Allison who wrote a book, Destined for War, and it sort of talked about the Thucydides trap that you have the U.S. and China up and coming rivals, that they were sort of destined in some ways, if you look at the last 500 years, all the times that you had this sort of rival country coming up, threatening this established leader, that it, it does lead into these tensions. Is that something that your group is focused on? Do you think it ultimately leads to that kind of clash? Or, or do you think the U.S. and China are going to be able to work this out and over time we're, we're going to be, find each other mutually beneficial clients um, of each other? I think we've been more focused on that we will find a way to work with them. Um, but that is definitely an interesting viewpoint. And clearly we are seeing some evidence, you know, Japan is actually, you know, spending money now to build out their military because they are concerned enough about China's activities. So uh, I don't think that's a anything sort of near term that we could run into, but I think we have to be aware that, you know, we have to negotiate and have deals that work for both parties or else that, you know, risk grows. We're talking with Peter Chur, uh, Marcus Strategist at Academy Securities. Interesting background working with veterans and having these admirals who help uh, advise them on strategy. Uh, so maybe, Peter, we sort of talked a little bit about the geopolitics, but how do you boil down all these, you know, you hear a lot about geopolitics all the day, all the time, but how do you boil that down into a market view? I mean, how are you thinking about, from a very high level, asset classes, what, what's your, your current uh, positioning and recommendations? So right now we had been kind of bullish earlier this week on equities, but I'd say I'm cautious on equities because we believe that there is more to this trade negotiation with China, and there will be another round. We do think that China is going to actively try and support Huawei and some of their you know, technology companies. So I think the market has to get past that or accept that we will ultimately come to a good deal, and that will kind of free us up to have a more you know, strength in the market. I also am part of a camp I think is growing increasingly concerned um, as you know, prior Jeremy said, that the Fed is intent on hiking quarterly, and yet we're seeing yield curves flatten. Some of the economic growth has really not been as good as maybe it could be, given the tax cuts that went through for individuals and companies. So we're, I'm, I'm certainly in the camp that the Fed may be hiking too quickly, too concerned about inflation, and not focusing enough on potential issues in the economy, as well as are they actually already slowing it down, right? We've had a lot of hikes. When I look at the two-year Treasury, to me, that's a real focal point of mine. September of last year, it was 1.25%. Today, it is 2.5%. Investors are able to, you know, get better yields without taking risk. That is costing, you know, it's making it cost more for our cars, our homes. I'm just worried that they are moving a little bit too quickly in terms of hiking, and I think that's why we see such flat yield curves. The market's concerned about that as well. Yeah, and that, that's sort of this dance that the Fed's been balancing. That and a lot of people look at that inverted yield curve as the recession indicator, and they do seem to be sensitive to not wanting to invert the curve, and you, you get some commentary there. But, and, but I've also heard some people say, you know, and some of the central bankers say, we have a very different policy environment today where you have the ECB and the Bank of Japan out there buying bonds, and so that don't think that this inversion this time is going to be the same as the inversions last time. Do you buy, do you buy into that? You know, I I definitely agree that the market dynamics are very different because they are so influenced by central banks' purchases and their policies. But, you know, Bernanke said inverted yield curves didn't make a difference back in 2004 or 5, I believe, and it turned out they did. Yeah. And what concerns me most is actually 
that they can almost become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Whereas if I'm a corporate entity and I'm thinking, ooh, should I build this plant, which will come online in a year or two years, and you start seeing that inverted yield curve, maybe you hold off. And I think we've got to take great care from the central bankers not to let this curve get too flat or inverted, because I think even if it's not for the reasons it should be, it can develop into that, where people will react and will be scared enough of an inverted yield curve that it will slow down the economy on its own. Yeah, so you said you're sort of worried about the front end impacting the consumer. Have you seen anything manifest from that, or is it just... Um, you know, you're starting to feel that there's, there's more floating rate debt out there. Like, what, what's the, the worry on, on short rates rising? You know, we've seen auto sales miss a bunch of times in the last three or four months. Some of that's hard to tell whether there was such a, you know, increase in auto purchases after the hurricanes that maybe that's why they're coming down. But auto sales and even furniture sales seem to be slipping. So when you look at some of the kind of larger ticket items, there is that sign that they're slipping. And when we talk to some of the, the corporations that we talk to that are involved, you know, they are seeing that it's a real impact, that they are not able to offer as cheap of financing as they could six months ago or a year ago on cars. So that, to me, is something I want to watch very carefully. Okay. And so then that, how does that manifest in terms of some of your views? So you're saying a little bit cautious on equities. Um, within fixed income, you got the, the sort of curve flattening. How do, how do you think about overall allocations to that fixed income market? Yeah, interesting. You know, when we talk about fixed income, but I do like floating rate products right now within the fixed income space. Yeah. I think you are getting, with yield curves so flat, you can invest in floating rates. So there's obviously floating rate uh, treasuries out there now, um, floating rate investment grade corporate bonds, and then leveraged loans. Some of those who, which are based on LIBOR, and LIBOR right now is even higher um, than usual relative to T-bills. So there's a lot of, you know, I think, money that can be made. So I personally right now I am de-risking. Mm-hmm. So when I look at what I'm trying to generate in terms of income in my portfolio, I can take a little bit of duration off the table and I can take a little bit of credit risk off the table. So I'm shifting out of high yield. I'm shifting out of very long-dated bonds. And I'm looking for shorter-dated bonds. But I keep coming to the idea that the floaters are interesting because they do seem intent on raising rates. So you will benefit from the floaters if they do raise rates. And the curves are so flat, you're not getting hurt. And normally that's the problem with floaters. You get hurt because curves are steep. So until the rates rise, you kind of lag. Right now you don't have that. So I think it's a really interesting thing that people should look through in their portfolios. Very interesting. I, I want to follow up on some, what, the comment you made on LIBOR. Um, but before, before I just get to the credit side um, and sort of talk about de-risking, and you mentioned the, sort of the, the security on floating rate treasuries, and something my team's been talking a lot about, that you, you did get this new issuance um, from the Fed, uh, from the Treasury, that it's a new type of security, sort of like TIPS. It was sort of, I think it was the first new security issue since TIPS were issued in 97. Um, so I don't think it's a asset class or asset that most people know about. Do you want to maybe sort of t- spend a few seconds just on the floating rate treasury, how, how, how you would think about it, and, and I could sort of add on to that. Yeah, I think the the one issue has been for people who've been looking to floating rate assets, you've always really had to either do the leverage loans, and those are clearly risky because the leverage loans are the senior secured loan equivalent of the high yield bonds. So they are weaker companies; they're non investment grade companies. So you do take a lot of credit risk if you want to go to the leverage loans. The floating rate notes, which tend to be investment grade issuers are okay. They tend to be three to seven years, but you are, again, are taking some credit risk. And I think that's why the Treasury issuance is really neat. It's the first time you can truly have a risk-free floating rate asset. So, and I agree, it really hasn't caught on institutionally yet. 
Um, it, but I think it is something people should be looking at as an alternative part. And tips, I think, I find incredibly complex. You know, you kind of understand how they work, but they are, it, it, it's not an obvious way in some ways. Whereas I think these uh, treasury floaters are very straightforward and people should understand them and it makes sense if you are in the treasury market, maybe even don't buy five-year treasuries. Look at some of these floaters and you get some neat um, risk-reward dynamics. Yeah, our, our team's definitely been talking about them as an alternative to both tips and you think about rising inflation, you get rising short-term Fed rates and that these are, you know, in some ways, the, the actual ultimate vehicle to benefit with the Fed rising. The rates reset every week. Uh, and so in some ways, it's even shorter duration than the one to three month T-bills that people tend to look at. So it, it, it's sort of this new security, new asset class, a uh, few options to, to get that. But I think it's, it's definitely one to keep people's eyes on. Um, yeah, it definitely makes sense. And again, it is ironic that, quote unquote, fixed income is really floating <laughs> some of the more attractive assets right now. Yeah, you don't have to, you don't have to take the duration to get paid given that, that flatness in the curve. Um, what about the LIBOR floaters? Um, LIBOR, you sort of mentioned on that investment grade. Is that, do you have a sense, are you worried about just the credit cycle, where we are in this stage of, of credit with rates starting to move up? That is that going to pressure those leveraged loan type products and you, you would stay more towards credit or do you, do you you'll still want to have some? I think I'm okay on? with the, inv- I, I like the investment grade ones. What has happened is we've actually seen the spread of LIBOR over T-bills jump from around 10 to 15 basis points to 40 basis points. So you're getting significantly extra spread of LIBOR now over T-bills. And in the past, that has occasionally meant that there was increasing credit risk and funding risk. And, you know, certainly during 2008, the crisis, you know, LIBOR widening was one of the early warning signs. I just don't think that's happening this time. Really what's gone on is there have been so many regulatory changes to how money market funds behave that they can't invest in LIBOR quite as much, and partly due to repatriation where some money was sitting offshore, that changed. There's been a lot of just supply and demand change within the money market area. That means there's less money available for LIBOR-type assets, and at the same time, we've been flooding the market with T-bills as we're hitting record deficits. Um, So that caused LIBOR to spike. It's not credit-related. I think it's more... It will correct itself over six months to a year as people shift their money around and deal with the regulations. So for me right now, you get that incremental pickup of 40 basis points. I'd hate to say free money because it's not free. There's always risk. But I do like owning that right now because I don't see any real credit problems in the system. Interesting. Um, we're talking with Peter Chur, market strategist at Academy Securities, about his views across the bond market. Uh, and so, Peter, when you think about the longer-term view on, on bonds, you got a lot of the, the major issues that we're confronting. One of the reasons why we're getting up in yields, well, you got the Fed hiking rates, you've got more issuance, you got the Fed rolling off its balance sheet. I mean, how do you view this rate cycle, and where do you see the 10-year creeping up to, uh, maybe this year a little bit longer term, as we go through this balance sheet unwind from the Fed and, and maybe eventually the ECB and some of these other central banks? You know, it's really interesting because right now it's almost as though every time we talk about hiking, the 10-year and long bond don't respond as much as you would expect. And I think people just aren't convinced that there's this long-term growth and long-term inflation, and the Fed might cut it off too early. So right now, kind of my view is that we're, we, we hit 3%, and this is the second time we've hit 3%. And if you look at a chart of the Treasuries going back probably 2010, we've done what I call this round number trading where we'll hit a round number a couple of times before breaking through. Most recently, we got to 260 really twice. 
once right after Trump was elected. Then it was kind of probably March after he'd taken office. And then it took almost another whole year before we got to 260 and really gathered the momentum to get through it. This is our second time hitting 3%. I think we'll kind of consolidate back at 285, 295. I do think we'll head to 325, 350, probably sometime in the fourth quarter if growth continues and the Fed keeps on pace. So that's kind of my view is that we can maybe range bound for a little while again, but I would look for a quick and rapid breakout to 325, maybe as high as 350, probably some point third quarter-ish. Yeah, I heard 306 is like the dividing line. Once you get past 306, that's sort of like the last for all the, the chart technicians. The uh, or 305, you know, the the, the the line is right, like right there. Yeah, yeah, and that's kind of we got to 303, 304. We didn't quite break this time, so we're holding in. But yeah, yeah. that to me, if you look through that, there's really no from a techni- technical standpoint any support or resistance until you get to at least 325, maybe as high as 350. Um, and, you know, curves are so flat, we're unusually flat, so there would be a lot of room for the back end, oh, so 10-year treasuries and 30-year treasuries to, you know, go to much higher yields without the front end having to move that much more. So any, so we talked to focus a lot about, we started with equities views, we're a little cautious, we talked about bonds going with the floaters. Anything internationally, how do you think about the international bond market with the, uh, you know, the view that maybe the ECB starts um, curtailing or stops their bond buying later this year? Any, any sense of just the global bond markets? Yeah, one thing, and this is a little bit probably off the beaten track, but I think will become more mainstream, is we've been talking to some investors about buying Chinese-denominated, uh, Chinese government bonds or um, bonds denominated yuan or um, NIMBY. Hmm. Um, we think that China is really making a big effort to become more integrated into the global markets. Um, you know, they are now a large participant in the special drawing rights of the IMF. They are allegedly out there talking to other central banks um, and sovereign wealth funds to encourage them to hold more Chinese assets. So it would not surprise me to see them start issuing a more um, normal bond curve just like we have. And I think that would actually attract a lot of attention. They yield much more than we do. The growth prospects are pretty strong there. And I do believe that they actually have a strong currency policy while we have a weak currency policy. So to some extent, they could be really interesting total return plays. And they've done very well for the last six months. And even as yields have been backing up in the U.S. and Europe and Japan lately, they've actually been tightening in China. So I think Hmm. people are starting to get a little bit more focused on them as a bond market and not just an equity play. Well, that's interesting. I mean, that, that is one of the big stories this year is from the equity perspective, you know, talking about just opening the capital markets to foreign investors. They've been, you know, one of the big index providers, MSCI, has been talking about adding A shares to some of their indexes. And uh, for a while, they had been restricted from that. And part of it was just the capital flows, capital ability, um, their openness to, um, you know, foreign capital. And they've been establishing this, you know, this yeah. Connect program in Hong Kong and trying to encourage more. And I think MSCI is up to 5% going to be going adding to A-shares this year. But I just came back from a trip to, to China and talking with investors uh, and people connected in the region, and there's a sense that they can move quick. Um, and, you know, last time China or a, another country was added to MSCI, it took a, a while, and there's some sense um, just that it may happen quicker than people realize how much they add A-shares. That would make a lot of sense to me, too, because one of the things we look at a little bit is Certainly a lot of the sovereign wealth funds are benchmarked to the MSCI indices. I think as a whole, emerging markets, particularly with China, 
are way too low of a percentage relative to how much they have dedicated to the U.S. and Western Europe. So I do think at some point, I still like emerging markets. I, I think they are probably underrepresented in some of these indices, so I think you could get that index, you know, if they get added or to the indices, like you were saying on the A shares, or the you know, percentage gets increased, yeah. that would create immense amount of demand for these companies. Um, so, yeah, I, I like that, and I think we continue to focus on EM, and EM bonds equally have done well. Interesting, yeah. One, maybe sort of one final point on this. Um, any, so the, the general sense has been some people have been worried that they're going to devalue the currency, and that was when the, the markets got really concerned in early 2016 was furious China's going to devalue. You made the point that you thought they were supporting a stronger currency policy. Any, any stance, and I, I definitely see that even within um, just looking at the markets, it's been one of the better performing markets this year, just the Chinese currency and, and local uh, money market rates. You, you could sort of track that. It's been yeah. one of our best performers. Um, any, any sense of what's supporting, you know, that, that, that they do want to have that stronger currency? Yeah, I think there's kind of three things that I see is this effort with the SDRs and the IMF and sovereign wealth funds to become a larger part of people's holdings. I think it does not get enough attention that you can now trade oil and gold futures directly in Remnimbi, so they are bypassing the dollar standard for oil. I think that is a clear sign to me that they want a larger part of the world you know, stage. And so that, to me, was probably one of the big signals, is as soon as they are really willing to let people trade oil and gold directly in Juan or Remnimbi and bypass the dollar, that's a sign they want strength. And then the final part of this is... When you look at this China 2025, where they really talk about being technology, I think the people who kind of just stubbornly say, oh, China wants a weak dollar or a weak currency policy, they're remembering the China that used to just make low-quality mass merchandise type stuff. I think the economy in China has moved on. They are also now a middle, there's a thriving middle class in China. It, it doesn't benefit them as much as it did say, 10 years ago to have a weak currency. So I think we're kind of stuck in some of our old mindset of thinking of how China looks or what they need. And if you look beyond that, I think China has moved past truly benefiting from a weak currency. And there might be, given that they're such a big consumer of you know, uh, natural resources, some benefits to actually having a stronger currency. Very good. So, Peter, maybe one final closing thought. Anybody, the types of people who should look for you at Academy Securities, just any final closing thoughts on how they can find you and, and what you think uh, people should reach out to Academy yeah. Securities for? Yeah, they can reach me at PTCHIR at academysecurities.com. We have been building up. One thing that we do is we're very involved in new issues. So a lot of the big corporations, when they issue bonds, and municipalities, when they issue bonds, um, put us on the deals. So we've been talking to a lot of smaller investors and RIAs and family offices where, one, we try and give them the same value and thoughts that we give our large institutional customers on what they should be doing in the markets, but we actually can provide access to uh, new issues, which has been really exciting and has been a big growing part of our business. Well, very good. Peter, thanks for, for joining us for some commentary today. Thanks very much for having me, Jeremy. We're going to be tuned next part of the program. We talk with Brent Johnson of Santiago Capital. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree. My guest for the next half hour is Brent Johnson, the CEO of Santiago Capital. I've been following Brent on, on Twitter here as a, an expert in gold, uh, in the gold community. Brent's uh, also created the Santiago Gold Fund back in, uh, in 2012. Brent, welcome to our program. 
Thanks for having me. Looking forward to talking to you. Um, so I've been following you on Twitter, and you've been talking a lot about how you think you know you could have a strong dollar and strong gold market to follow, and that's sort of one view where a lot of people think that um, gold and the dollar are very you know unrelated or sort of strong dollars hurt gold. So I'm going to be curious to probe you on that, but maybe you could just sort of talk a little bit before we get into to views on the markets. Sort of talk a little bit about yourself, how you got to to, to being the CEO of Santiago Capital, a little bit capital, a little bit about your background. Sure, sure. So I started off, uh, you know, my Wall Street career back in the late 90s at a firm called Donaldson, Lufkin, and Jinrette in New York. And uh, I moved with them to San Francisco, where I was in the high net worth group managing, um, you know, high net worth clients in the Bay Area. Uh, shortly after I arrived in San Francisco, Credit Suisse bought DLJ. So I was with Credit Suisse for about 10 years. And then subsequent to that, uh, in 2010, I left Credit Suisse and joined a buddy of mine who'd set up his own independent registered investment advisor, uh, which is called Baker Avenue Asset Management. And so I kind of transferred my wealth management business uh, you know, over to that platform. And in 2012, I set up Santiago Capital, which is the precious metal solution to my overall wealth management business. Uh, so the, the Santiago is the precious metal solution for the diversified portfolios of, of the clients that we manage. So, you know, I kind of come to the gold world from a general view as opposed to just always having been in the gold world. Uh, it, for some reason, you know, I've found that most people are either traditional people or they're, or they're alternative asset people or, you know, gold uh, people um, and not a lot of crossover between the two. Uh, but I've always been, you know, kind of the big picture guy and I, I think you need to have both of them. So, I think maybe that's part of the reason why I look at the gold world a little bit differently than you know a typical gold manager or a typical person who's involved in the gold space. Um, but uh, you know it's a, it's 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 a it's a great business, it's an interesting business. Um, you know you're always you're always learning. You're all, you, some you know some days you get it right, a lot of times you get it wrong. But uh, I guess yeah. the goal is to you know keep growing it and over time um, you know provide that value to your clients. No, so it's interesting talking about so incorporating into a broader wealth management practice. I think well, that's one of the big questions people have is, you know, you have these standard 60-40 portfolio allocations, and you know, I think one of the challenges just for that standard 60-40 is that you haven't had a period where equities and bonds go down together. You saw that a little right. bit this year, where rise inflation, Fed rising rates, and you know, Fed this equity sell off. What? How much do you think of a portfolio for your clients? Do you suggest? Being in these in uh, yeah. beyond sixty forty equity bonds, and then how much should be in this sort of gold type strategy? You can maybe talk about your approach. Sure. So, first of all, I guess I should say you know it's different for everybody. So yeah. this isn't necessarily advice for for anybody listening. It's not necessarily the appropriate advice for them. Um, it really depends on you know a client's age, what their cash flow needs are, what their risk, you know, all that kind of stuff. So. In general terms, um, you know, for a long time, I'd say that 60-40 was a very appropriate, you know, allocation. Uh, I don't think that's the appropriate allocation anymore. Um, and I'd say over the last couple of years, we have the, the fixed income allocation that we do have, we've kept it very short term, and it's been getting even shorter um, over the last couple of years. And then for many of my clients, um, earlier this year, we sold a big portion of their fixed income allocation altogether. Uh, not because I think a crash is going to happen necessarily, you know, in fixed income, but just the risk reward uh, or the relative safety of bonds is nowhere near where I think it was for the last 40 years. Um, you know, you've had uh, 40 years of a bull market in bonds. I mean, there, there's people that if you've been a buy and hold investor in bonds at some any point over the last 40 years, you've never lost money more than two quarters in a row. 
And you know, I think that that is 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 coming to an end. So we've been shortening up our bond portfolios. We've been lowering our allocation to bond portfolios. Um, the problem is, where do you go? Right? Um, stocks are at their all-time highs. Uh, real estate has their all-time as its all-time highs. Um, so it, it, it's really hard um, to 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 be a fiduciary in this environment. I think. And and I think one of the interesting things is that. You know, I think a lot of times people, in in a way, in in order to be the fiduciary and in order to not take so much risk, they stay out of the equity market. Well, the problem is, is I think fixed income is just as risky as as equities right now. So I'm um, I'm not saying that the people that are staying away from the equity market are bad fiduciaries by any means. I'm just saying it's, you know, it's really challenging right now. Yeah. Um, and I, but I do think that uh, I do think equities are going to go higher. Um, I, I think fixed income has likely topped. We may get another rally here at some point in the next three or four months, but I think it is largely topped. Um, and I think in the years ahead, we're going to see rates rising, which will be um, you know, bad for bonds. And I think for a little while, it'll help stocks. Uh, but this is all eventually going to end very badly, which is mm. where the gold comes into the equation. Interesting. And um, you know, I think everybody, everybody, and, and this I do think applies to everybody, everybody should have some gold in their portfolio in some form, in some size. I don't think anybody should be without gold in their portfolio. So, so shifting from the, if you're saying lowering your bond risk, you're probably doing some short duration cash type strategy or floating rate yep. type things. What if, if I know we don't we don't want to be prescriptive for everybody because it is yep. very soon. But if if you take the standard sixty forty, which is a model, and yep. f which is probably your most common when I see model portfolios, it's literally the most common model portfolio I see. Sure. So it cuts across the broadest cross section of people. Sure. What would you say of that? Would you say should be how how what else would you put in that? You know, and yep. how much would you think gold would would be for that? So I'm a I'm one of these guys who I think that. In general terms, if you you can keep it simple and do a very very good job, and you know, for some people who maybe have a big or more complicated portfolio or have a higher degree of wealth and they got you know multiple properties and multiple companies or something, it gets a little bit more confusing. But yeah, you know, there's there, there's a portfolio management theory that goes all the way back to the 70s called the permanent portfolio, which is essentially you know 25% in fixed income, 25% in equities, 25% in real estate, and 25% in gold. Yep. And you know, I actually think that's a really good place to start. Um, you know, if, if you did that portfolio and just held that portfolio over the last 40 years, you would have made money every year except for three years. Uh, the three years that you lost money, it would have been like you know, down five, down eight, and down 12 or something like that. Uh, it would have almost kept up with the S&P 500. Um, you know, until the last couple of years when the S&P kind of really kind of broke out. Um, so I think you know that's not a bad place to start. Uh, right now, I would say as far as fixed income, maybe 15 or 20 percent of a portfolio. Um, you know, I, I don't think I'd have the full 25 percent in there right now. Hmm. Um, you know, gold I'd probably have in the 15 to 25 percent range. I'd probably, as crazy as it sounds, I'd probably be a little bit overweight equities right now, <laughs> as hard as it is to, to believe that. Um, and I'd probably still have the fixed income. You know the the part that wasn't in fixed income, I'd probably have have had some cash on the sidelines. Very good. So when you think about those gold allocations, um, is it? Do you think about the gold, or do you think about the the miners, the companies? Yeah. How, when you when you create your strategies, how do, how do you yeah. invest? So in it? so we have uh, the the reason that that I set up. Uh, uh, the fund is that we wanted to actually own the physical bars. We wanted to own them outside the banking system. Um, we wanted to have them in multiple jurisdictions, multiple geographies, et cetera, et cetera. And there really wasn't a good solution for that. Um, 
And I also wanted to have exposure to the miners when the time was right, and I wanted to have the ability to hedge it, you know, in time, from time to time. So it really just made sense to, to kind of set up our own thing rather than trying to allocate to a number of different managers in the gold space who did a number of different things. Um, right now, I am not in the miners. Um, I sold all our miners back in um, October of 2016, and I just haven't gotten back into them yet. And a lot of people tell me I should. A lot of people tell me that um, you know I'm going to miss the initial breakout. And I just, uh, you know, I, I still think there might be a better opportunity ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a, like I said, I've said several times, you know, I don't think you should sell your gold. If you have physical gold, hold on to it. Um, you know, it's the insurance for the rest of the portfolio. Um, but that doesn't mean it's going to break out today or break out tomorrow. You know, every time we've gotten to this 1360 range, everybody uh, you know, on Twitter and all my friends in the gold world, you know, this is it, this is it, this is it. And I'm just not sure if this is it yet. It, you know, if yeah. it is, I'll gladly embrace it and, you know, we'll be off to the races. But um, I, I, th- I think the, the world is a little bit more... Uh, a little more complicated than other people would like to believe, and I, I don't think it's necessarily going to go the way a lot of uh, people think it is. No, the the miners are something interesting. I mean, I, I, so, I followed someone on Twitter who was pointing a chart that all the producers are sort of short gold as they've ever been, and that sort of be commentary yeah. that they're hedging their position to gold. So you think you have this gold miners play that gives you the direct gold exposure, but then they're actually hedging some of their gold yep. exposure. It's like, well, what are we by actually getting with the miners? Right, and that, yeah. and that's the thing. Like, listen, I think there will be a time where the miners will do incredibly well, and it will provide a turbo boost on top of gold. Um, but I didn't get into gold, you know, in order for that, you know, turbo boost and leveraged upside. I got into gold for, as a counterparty, uh, you know, as a no, a no risk counterparty investment and an opportunity to to protect yourself whether inflation or deflation, flow, you know, shows up. Um, I'm I'm not. I didn't necessarily come to gold for the inflation argument, although that's you know certainly a part of it. Um, I came to it just as much for a counterparty. Um, reason as I did for the inflation protection. Let me just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Brent Johnson, CEO of Santiago Capital, focuses on gold. Now, Brent, one of the things that you talked about on Twitter that sort of caught my eye was this view on the dollar, which, you know, when you, th- when you think about what factors impact gold, you have rates that impact yep. gold. And, you know, that's been one of the negative, you know, when you see rates dramatically rising, you know, or especially real rates, when real rates are rising. And that's yep. sort of one of the pressure points. But what, what's your view on the dollar? Maybe sort of talk about how, how you think that's playing out. Sure. So this is where I see things a little bit different than a lot of my friends as well. And, it, you know, we, I should point out, you know, you know, you've referenced Twitter. And, you know, I have some fairly uh, massive battles, for, last, for lack of a better word, over Twitter. Uh, but I think people who maybe come to that for the first time and see me going back and forth with, with people, they think that maybe we don't like each other or maybe we're mad at each other. And it's, it's not like that at all. I actually know all these guys that, you know, we get into these Twitter battles with. And it's really uh, a form of debate and a way of to, to spark conversation and to make you think. And, you know, I know all these guys personally. I talk to them, you know, as often offline as I do online. And, you know, th- there's no hard feelings either way. It's, it's really just, uh, um, you know, it, again, it's a, we just we just disagree. <laughs> so now, now you've got me intrigued even right? more because I actually am not sure I've picked up on the whole debate battle scene there. So who who are we talking about on on Twitter? That well, we're... I think I think the one that most people reference is Luke Groman. Um, okay. I yes. think Luke has done a fantastic job of identifying a number of markers or red flags or signposts, however you want to describe them, about how the world is going to de-dollarize and move away from the dollar. And I give him a lot of credit because he's done a lot of work on it. And I don't necessarily think he's wrong. What I think, where I think he's wrong, though, is the timing. 
Um, we both ultimately believe that the dollar's intrinsic value is zero. Uh, eventually, the dollar will, you know, go by the wayside, and there will be a new system put in place. You know, the economic power in the world will eventually be China. Um, you know, and wealth will m- migrate towards that area of the world rather than the West. But I, I just think it's going to take a much, much different path to get there. Um, you know, he he tends to think that uh, the world has, you know, begun de-dollarizing, quote unquote, over the last five to ten years, and that you know, should they choose. And I don't want to put words in his mouth, but as I as I understand it, he he thinks that if they so choose, they could switch from a dollar-based economic system to a multipolar you know system within a matter of you know two or three months, call it. Yeah. And I don't think it's that simple. I, I think it's I think everybody would like to do that, but just because you want to do something doesn't mean you have the ability to do it. And and the markets may not let you do that without inflicting enormous pain during the transition period. And so that's really kind of our, our difference. Um, the reason that I think that the dollar is going to go higher, and I think this will ultimately be really good for gold, um, it'll be a headwind initially probably, but the entire monetary system was set up and designed for a, let's call it either a stable or weakening dollar. It was not designed for it to get stronger. And if it does get stronger, it will create enormous problems throughout the entire monetary system. And I think all the problems that this stronger dollar causes will lead to the chaos, which eventually causes a lack of confidence in markets, which will eventually push people into gold. And gold will eventually literally go parabolic. Um, You know, I have as a base case that the gold will go to $5,000 and, you know, the reality is it'll probably go much higher than that, but uh, just in a general sense, I, uh, that's kind of my minimum that, that it will go to. And let's say that's over the next four or five years. Hmm. Well, that's a, um, is an interesting it's an interesting time stamp. We'll come back to you in 2022, yeah. 2023. We'll check in. <laughs> now, I know that's not, you know, there's a, a range of probabilities that these things occur yeah. over. And before, you know, Bitcoin sort of surged and, and populated in a big way, you might have said, wow, that's, is that really possible right. for one of these? Not, but maybe any any maybe commentary briefly. A lot of people say digital gold is now this Bitcoin. Do you have a view that that these cryptocurrencies are going to overtake gold as one of these alt currencies? No, I don't think it's going to overtake it, but I think it is going to take some of it. Um, I think the debate between gold and Bitcoin is a little bit silly, quite honestly. Just the way I think that the debate between equities and gold is kind of silly. Um, you know. A lot of times you'll hear financial, you know, talk radio or financial TV, and they'll say, "Well, should you get out of equities and get into gold, or or, or vice versa, or whatever it is?" And and you know, yeah. the reality is you can have both. There's no reason you can't have both. The whole point of a port, if you know, if if people didn't have diversification in their portfolio, they'd just say, "How's your stock?" They wouldn't say, "How's your portfolio?" Right? The whole, you know, portfolio in itself, you know, indicates diversification. Um, so I think you should have both, you know, digital gold and regular gold. Yeah. I don't think that. Bitcoin will ever replace gold. I think gold is the foundation for the entire monetary system. Even though it's not priced off of it right now, the reality is all the central banks, all the governments of the world, at least most of them, hold gold as a reserve. Um, And the reason they hold gold as a reserve is they know in some kind of a crisis or in some kind of a meltdown or whatever you want to call it, gold is the reserve that everybody will accept. Um, And so I don't think that's ever going to go away. Now, does that mean that there's not going to be other types of money that can replace or, or, or you know, sit alongside gold? No, absolutely not. Um, 
you know, it's just another choice and another currency which with you with which you can use. And I I, I don't think cur- digital currencies are going away. I think you know that genie's been let out of the box. I think they're incredibly powerful. I think they're going to be around for a long, long time. That said, there's what two or three thousand now, and there's probably you know need for four or five of them. You know, mm-hmm. not two or three thousand. So. It'll be similar, in my opinion, to the you know the dot com crash. Um, you know all these companies that will spring up and you know say that we're going to the moon and we're going to change the world. And you know the reality is, is 99% of them won't, and 99% of them will you know go to zero. Uh, but the four or five that you know remain will become the Amazons and the Googles and the Cisco's and the, and the thing like that. And you know I think they have a real chance to change the world. And yep. if nothing else, if nothing else, the fact that people Many people and popular, like popular culture, popular media are talking about currencies and alternative forms of currencies that are alternative to the government-issued fiat currencies. I think that in itself is a very big benefit to the world. So if nothing else comes out of it, the fact that people realize there's another choice, I think, is a good thing. So, so let me go back to what you you know you had a few different things, um, sort of bold statements that the value of the dollar long term is worthless, um, but and China's going to overtake you know in some ways the the sort of global currency regimes, um, yeah. but in terms of the sort of short term and, and actually I wonder if you think this is what happened last year when you think about what factors drive the dollar rate differentials are yeah. one of the key things I follow and and uh, until this week rate differentials haven't mattered the Fed's been hiking nope. the ECB's negative and you had a very weak dollar. Um, yep. Some say that may have been China diversifying, but any, any of you, what's going to cause the dollar to get higher in the short term? Yeah. So, first of all, I'll start off and say, you know, I've been wrong for a year. So, <laughs> you know, um, I'm you. not afraid to say I'm wrong. A lot of people won't admit that they're wrong. I'm, I'm the first guy to say that I've been wrong. I, I didn't. I, it wouldn't surprise me when the dollar went down. It surprised me that it stayed down for as long as it has. Um, you know, markets, what's that saying? You know, markets stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. You know, that's it's kind of playing out in real time. I mean, these things, you know, it seems like they always take longer than you think that they should. Um, but but the interest rate differentials are just part of it for me. Um, if it was just interest rate differentials alone, I think that would still matter. Um, but it wouldn't matter as much. Um, but I think we're getting to the point where a lot of the strength of the euro, whether you want to call it, euro, you know, dollar weakness or euro strength, yeah. Um, was on the back of the thought that, you know, the U.S., even though we were tightening, we were going to tighten into a recession and we would have to then go back to QE at the same time that, you know, Draghi was talking about we we're going to start tapering. And so, therefore, you know, we would like to end this, you know, European stimulus sometime in, you know, late 2018, 2019. And so um, everybody was baiting, you know, betting, for lack of a better word, on that future rolling out the way, you know, that that narrative. And I've just always thought that that narrative was wrong. Uh, but narratives are powerful. And I think, uh, you know, you saw that go for a long time. But now, you know, in the last couple of months, you've seen European data start to roll over. European inflation um, indicators are starting to roll over. You know, Mario himself has started to back off his tapering talk. So, um, and uh, at the same time, you know, a lot of people that said, you know, the, the U.S. can never taper. It'll throw us into recession. Well, you know what? We tapered and then say, well, the first rate hike will throw us into a recession. Well, you know what? We've had five rate hikes and we're still not in a recession. So, you know, it doesn't mean that it won't happen eventually. But again, it's one of these things where it, it takes longer than a lot of people thinks. And, you know, here we are with our rates above 2% and the rest of the world's, you know, hovering just above zero. And I think that ultimately that does make a difference. Um, not only that, but I think the Fed is going to continue to tighten um, because even though they've tightened, financial conditions are actually looser now than when they started tightening. 
Um, not only that, but the dollar's down 10% from when they started tightening. So, you know, they've got more room to tighten now than they did when they started, you know, a year and a half ago. So I don't see, uh, you know, why they're going to stop. The other thing is, you know, from 2014 to into 2015, the stock market went nowhere. It was flat. But what's it done since they started hiking? You know, it's gone up 20, 25% since they started hiking. So, you know, tell me again why, you know, rising rates are so bad for equities. Yeah, in theory it is, right? You know, tighter monetary policy, you would think that would be bad for equities. But, you know, so far it hasn't hurt them. So I I think the Fed will continue to tighten. So the interest rate differential will, I think, still be there. But it really comes down to a supply-demand issue. Um, The fact is, is that, you know, for years and years and years, all the central banks of the world were pushing new money into the system. They were, you know, inflating the money supply, right? Well, now um, the U.S. is no longer doing that. In fact, they're shrinking the amount of dollars out there. They're not doing QE anymore, and they're actually buying dollars back from the market in the form of issuing debt. So you have a system where the supply is no longer growing at the rate that it was. Uh, in fact, it's no longer growing at all, and you have the biggest buyer in the world, which is the U.S. government, coming in and buying the existing supply right alongside the rest of the market. So the crowding out, for lack of a better word, of you know available dollars in the system, um, in my mind, makes you know, you've got fixed supply and dwindling supply and a lot of still demand. Um, that's a good recipe for the dollar going higher. It's um, very, so it's think, very interesting. Yeah, and we for a while I would say that you had this. Essentially, you had politics and the overriding trade narratives come in, and, and for you know for a while we had these trade wars, and then you have actually Mr. King Dollar, Mr. Larry Kudlow, yep. come into the White House, and so maybe yep. we just have a little bit different. Um, Brent, we re- we actually ran out of time here, um, but I appreciate you coming on the show, Brent Johnson of CEO of Santiago Capital, uh, the expert on gold, and here views on the dollar. Thanks for so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Happy to come back and uh, talk more anytime. Absolutely. You've been listening to Behind the Markets and Sirius XM 111. Thanks to our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Daniel Bruno, our two guests, Brent Johnson and Peter Chur. You can also listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.